you know, we put African-American history in February, the coldest and shortest month, as if it's some politically correct addendum to our national narrative and not as we have discovered in everything we have done at the burning heart of it. It is inseparable. It is integrated in every sense of the word. And so it's not it's just a question of pursuing the stories of us. And, you know, the stories in there will keep us busy for thousands of years if we were given that time. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We have an oh-so-special show for you this week. This fall, there will be a multi-night documentary on PBS called Muhammad Ali with the tagline, bigger than boxing, larger than life. And we have its creators, the legendary Ken Burns and the soon-to-be legendary Sarah Burns and David McMahon. I also have choice words about the Olympics. I have Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards. I've got a tribute to the biz himself. Nobody beats the biz, biz Markey. But first, Ken Burns, Sarah Burns, and David McMahon. So, you know, not not to not to shock you guys, but you are the Burns McMahons. Um, you could make any film. Why Ali? Ken, start with you. Well, I think that the real impetus for this uh, grew out of Dave and 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 Sarah, and I think all of us have danced around him as uh, just a, a hugely important mythic. Uh, American figure. And when he mythic, so much of what he does and has happened to him is at the level of a kind of heroic uh, status. And so the things that he goes through are sort of exaggerated versions of what we go through. And he remains a kind of teacher for us, good and bad of, of all those things. He's just history firing on all cylinders. I can't imagine us not doing him and not doing a complete story. As you know, as well as anyone, there are lots of good documentaries on Muhammad Ali, but we felt that there was not one that really took him uh, from beginning to end, from boyhood and Jim Crow Louisville to death by Parkinson's just a few years ago. And the arc of that seemed important to not just focus on a particular fight or many fights, or a particular fight with the United States government, but to try to understand the whole of him and his intersection with all the things that went on in the last half of the 20th century uh, in race, in politics, in war, in religion, uh, in all of these different things that now resonate today, perhaps as much as they did before. Mm. Sarah, David, why Ali for you? What attracted you to the project? Well, um, the author and journalist Jonathan Ike had been writing a big book on Ali, and he had called us and said, you know, um, there's a lot of coverage out there, as Ken just said, um, but nobody has really done this comprehensively. And he was right. We couldn't find anything that did it the way that Ken just described it. And so um, we had a nice long timeline, and we were able to turn over every rock and find every scrap of footage that we could turn up and assemble a life that was both through our telling and the narration, but also through 
all of this beautiful archival footage. He had to be among the most well-documented figures of the 20th century. But also we thought there was an opportunity to offer a perspective that hadn't been yet been shared. And so we filmed over 40 interviews. And together, I think we have um, put together a portrait of him that is as comprehensive as anything ha anybody has ever done. And um, it's a journey in faith. Um, it's a battle and um, coming to grips with Parkinson's. Um, it has facets that um, other accounts I, I don't think have. Um, we're very excited to share it. Mm. So Sarah, for you, anything um, else that made this like a magnetic for you to want to do? I mean, you know, he's just such a compelling figure. I think it didn't take any kind of convincing for us to to all recognize mm. what a, not only what an important story this is and how much it tells us about who we are, both in in sort of how he is engaging with everything that's going on in the 20th century in politics, in sports, in religion, and um, you know, war, um, all of these different arenas, um, but also just what a what a compelling human being and how much fun it's been for us, just what a joy to spend these last few years getting to know him steeped in this footage and this, you know, archival material of, of what he had to say. And I think for me, coming to understand his um, courage uh, and just his incredible love for people, the way that he touched people has been the most um, thrilling part of it, maybe. I mean, we always find that whenever we talk to people, whenever we would tell people we're doing a Muhammad Ali film, everyone has an Ali story because it's so clear that he just touched every person he ever came in contact with um, in these ways that are so memorable and so meaningful to them. That's just been, uh, it's been great fun. Yeah, I, I share that very much, um, meeting people who have these incredible individualized stories of coming into contact with him that, you know, for Ali must have happened multiple times in a given day, but for them becomes one of the great stories of their lives that they repeat over yeah. and over. That's yeah, no amazing. one forgets those. They just, they're, they're indelible. And it's, and I think it's perhaps his greatest gift um, more than, you know, his talent as a boxer was just his ability to make other people feel seen and feel special. Um, that's that's I think a kind of rare gift, and it it's so clear from everyone who's ever encountered him that he that he gave that to people. Mm, uh, you know, can, can, we, oh, we, sorry, go we, ahead. We had, Sarah and Dave and I had the great privilege of getting to know and and love Buck O'Neill, uh, the mm. Negro League player who made you in a very small world make you feel like he had gotten up that day to see you. And there's something reminiscent of this power of love. You know, it's a four-letter word, very difficult for most people to talk about, that Ali that was able to touch the entire And that, that Sarah is absolutely right. It's just, he is an, a, a, a an irresistible human being, even with all the flaws. And we did not want to pull any of those punches, no pun intended. It's so funny you say that because that was my, my next question is is a, a real staple of the kind of work that you all do is taking some heroes and she was bringing them down from the heavens and making them human. 
And I want to ask you, when it comes to Muhammad Ali, was it was it difficult or was it a challenge to avoid hagiography with someone like this? I don't think so. This is the way we roll and we we want to do that. We don't in any way think that you diminish the sort of position that a person has by by reminding people that he, in this case, had incredibly great flaws. Uh, in fact, I think it makes the the story, the narrative more trustworthy if you've said, and this is too, without judgment. You're just saying this is what it is. This is how it is. All of us have in much smaller quantities these these issues in our own lives. And this is a, you know, we, we couldn't do it without it. And and I, I don't think there was difficulty, Sarah and Dave, and and sort of saying, you know, we had to be honest about this. We had to be honest about that and that we didn't feel that he would come away looking any less. Mm. Yeah. And I think I'll add to that, that um, he addresses some of what he would describe as his flaws on camera. And so we had the luxury of being able to hear directly from him speak about some of his infidelity or um, you can see the way that he treated Joe Frazier on camera. And we know that later in life, he talked about maybe having done a little better job in navigating that relationship. Same with Malcolm X. And then and we have voices in the film, um, including two of his ex-wives, who generously talk about the flaws of their relationships. And yet you can tell they still love him to this day. And so I think we did not shy from it, and nor did anybody who joined us to discuss it on camera. And also there it is in the archives. Yeah. Sarah, was it a challenge at all? Because, you know, it's hard not to find him eminently admirable and lovable <laughs> throughout yeah. much of his yeah. life. Is it a challenge to be like, OK, we have to remember three dimensional person. We're bringing him off the pedestal. We're trying to show who he really is to the public. Yeah, I mean, I, th I no, I don't think it's really a challenge. I would agree that that it's, you know, we're interested in stuff that's complicated always. And so it's not so much, it's neither a kind of trying to protect him in some way, you know, like we need to make him some perfect hero, nor is it trying to knock him off of a pedestal, right? It's like, it's just about trying to understand him as a three-dimensional, complicated human being. And those things, those flaws, I think actually can sometimes make someone that much more, um, yeah, authentic and real and relatable and human. And that's a good thing. Um, it's, you know, it's all part of the the whole package. And I think you can you can look at someone like Muhammad Ali and recognize these flaws, things that he himself recognized and pointed to, as as Dave was saying. Um, but then you can appreciate that he is this full human being, and it actually makes him more real. Like he's not a god. You know, he's a he's a person. He's just this really particularly extraordinary person. Um, and it's all part of that package. And I think we don't we're not afraid of that. And we're also not, you know, looking for it. We're not going to say, well, how can we how can we knock him down either? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. There's a kind of a binary trap uh, that is particularly virulent today, which is either the kind of hagiography hey, trap that you described, but also the revisionist trap is is equally pernicious. And so those polarities don't exist for us. We just have 
a person and an obligation and a process and, and our own kind of muscle memory to it to include what you can include that shows the full person as best we could. Ken, what was your uh, knowledge of Ali yourself growing up uh, in the, the 60s, the 70s? Like what, 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 what were your memories that were your own before you even de delved into this project? Well, it's it, they're pretty good because I remember watching the 60 Olympics with my dad and we watched him win. I don't really remember the fight, but I remember the gold medal and a kind of pride we took. And, and I remember the name Cassius Marcellus Clay. And, and then we saw him, you know, boxing wasn't anything in our family. It was an academic family, but here was something that was a little bit different. And yet his braggadocio had turned off many of us, including my dad and me. Uh, so that by the time we got to the Liston fight, I can remember that Liston was the person we knew. That was the way a black person should behave. Um, and this is not the way a black person should behave in Cassius Clay's case. And so his victory was unexpected, but something flipped. I think we followed Cosell, who, who was similar in his aversion at the start and then became part of what makes that show and uh, the show business of it so interesting and then of course as our opposition as a as a as a, a liberal left family to the war grew early on um his stand against it made him you know so so great and um and and so, you know, we loved him, just loved him. And then, you know, I can remember sitting in film class at Hampshire College, looking at the footage from the Zaire fight. Uh, and some of it slowed down to slow motion. I don't know how we got it. In fact, I tried to track that reel of film down because mm. it made such an impression on me, a, a blow to Foreman that was almost silhouetted. You couldn't see context. And all you could see is just the sweat going off in every direction as he connected. Um, and then, you know, following the ups and downs in the end, and of course the Olympics, I remember really well, 25 years ago. Mm. And Sarah and, and David, I mean, I mean, Ken has these very <clears throat> memories of the sort of whole arc of Ali before he even starts working on this project. What, what was it for you both in terms of what you were coming in with, with your Ali knowledge or your Ali perceptions? Yeah, my, mine was much more vague, I think. I mean, I, I, I didn't, I hadn't really watched the fights. I mean, I'm sure I'd seen bits and pieces of them here and I've, they're so iconic that I certainly knew, you know, I'd heard of the rumble and the jungle or the thrill in Manila, you know, I was sort of aware of these things as these big cultural moments, but it wasn't something that I had ever sat down to watch really. Um, you know, I, I also remember the Olympics, of course, in 96, um, that was such a, a kind of iconic moment. And, um, I remember that from the time, but I did not know, I mean, other than, than my sort of general sense of Ali as this like towering figure, um, I didn't really know his story well before we, st before starting to work on this project. Um, and, you know, and I've never followed boxing really either. I mean, I, it's not a sport that I was particularly familiar with. And so part of the 
the learning curve of this. And this is true with every project that we come in not necessarily knowing much about it. And a huge part of what we do is the is the research um, for us preparing to write the script and, and doing that research and just getting to know the subject and finding the archival material, um, you know, for me was was learning about about boxing uh, in general and about Ali in particular and his his style and all the fights. And, and it's been um, really fascinating for me because that was not not in my wheelhouse at all. The boxing part of it. Yeah, I could say something bad, Dave, before Dave. Uh, uh, jumps in with his is that you'll always find you come to a project with some sense of preconception or some baggage that you have and that gets left right away everything goes out the door I, I met Ali once you know at a, and didn't talk with him we just had a kind of wordless conversation in a coffee shop in LA and of course I made a film about Jack Johnson whose last chapter is the ghost in the house story told from the other point of view and so, uh, you know, we're courting him, but Sarah's exactly right. You just, once you say yes to it, you're basically, you know, I, I made a film on baseball and I thought, oh, finally, I know some, uh, something I know about. It. And every day was a daily humiliation about what I didn't know. So, mm. Yeah. D David, any preconceptions on Ali or a framework that you had before you started the project? Not really. I mean, I couldn't name the heavyweight champion, and I'm a sports fan. Um, I was five when Ali lost his last fight, and I remember watching Mike Tyson fight at the height of his powers, and that was sort of the end of my relationship with uh, the current state of boxing. But I think that what's so great about Ali is that um, he would make – he was such a tremendous promoter, and the promoters would say he was better at their, their job than they were. Um, but the fights always seem to be about more than just a boxing match. Um, the backdrop for them, whether it had to do with faith or whether it had to do with who is more authentically African-American, who was more American, you could be drawn into the fights, even if you weren't a fight fan, because you were compelled by the backdrop, the story, um, the narrative that he was driving about the upcoming fight. And so um, even if you aren't a boxing fan, there's something for you in following his fight with Floyd Patterson or his fights with Joe Frazier. And so I don't think the, it can sometimes be tough to watch. And part of that is because you fall in love with him, I think, across the film. And there's really something brutal about it at its core. Um, but you care about him and there's more to it than just a fight. And so you don't have to be a fight fan or know much about him to be drawn to him. Mm, you, you know, Ken, your, your last answer actually le led into something I really wanted to ask you. You mentioned the Jack Johnson film. You mentioned the uh, the, the baseball series. Uh, of course, you did a very highly regarded documentary you, 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 on Jackie Robinson, now Ali. Uh, what makes sports such a rich vein for the kind of work that you want to do filmically? Well, I'm not sure if this will be as satisfying an answer. We're all we're interested in stories and stories are inevitably about at their heart human beings. I think for way too long, sports have been considered a kind of lesser arena in which, you know, American history, as it's taught, if it is taught, is just a series of presidential administrations punctuated by wars. And we know that's not true. And what it turns out is that sports often offer us 
uh, glimpses of aspects of our life and our culture and of individuals who kind of contain the irresistibility that Sarah was describing in Ali. I mean, the first real progress in civil rights after the Civil War was the arrival of Jack Roosevelt Robinson, the grandson of a slave, at first base at Ebbets Field on April 15, 1947. Martin Luther King's a junior at Morehouse College then. There haven't been any lunch counter, uh, planned lunch counter uh, protests except those that Jackie made back in Pasadena. Uh, Rosa Parks hasn't refused to give up her seat on the bus, though Jackie had done that at Fort Hood. Um, you know, there wasn't an integrated military that was about to come to an executive order from Truman. There wasn't Brown versus Board of Education. So we we were looking at baseball as a kind of sequel uh, to the Civil War, which, you know, clearly and obviously kind of confounded other people. But but if you you know, you you look for this question, which is, I think, animated all of our films, which is, who are we as a people? And the answer come, or if not the answer, then the then the deepening of that question comes from pursuits and nothing's off limit. Wars are incredibly revealing too. The Civil War, uh, the Second World War, which we've done, um, the Vietnam War. We're working on the American Revolution right now. They're 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 hugely revealing. And I think in the ritualized warfare of sports. Um, some of these dramas, human and otherwise, are played out. And what makes Jackie Robinson and, and to an even greater extent Muhammad Ali so compelling is the intersection of all of these different themes that we're talking about. His faith, um, the, just the whole you know, anathema of Islam to mainstream America, to uh, the civil rights movement, to the question of integration versus uh, separation, to um, war and the refusal to go and all of the the things plus the the strange horrible beauty of of boxing uh, at least i can get into it when there's somebody like jack johnson but particularly muhammad ali jack johnson isn't a particularly good person uh he's not He's not, he's interested only in himself and is not he's 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 an anathema to a rising African-American middle class as much as he is a dire threat that needs to have a great white hope dispose of him uh, for the rest of white America. Muhammad Ali is in another plane. And, and it's what Sarah was saying about that love and that joy and that beauty uh, the gracefulness uh, at, at his prime, all of that, the humor, uh, the wink, um, the, you know, have you ever seen Martin Luther King crack up? Mm-hmm. You know, only in our film, right? <laughs> he cracks up when, when um, they come out of their private meeting in Louisville. It's just one of the great things. And then he's totally uptight when Muhammad Ali puts his arm around him and wants to hug him like a brother. And so you see the polarities of King in that. And there's Muhammad Ali holding his own and as smart as anybody in the room and being himself. And he's in his 20s. Amazing. Which I'm glad you said that last part there, because I think we de- decontextualize how young he was sometimes yeah. when we speak about what Ali did and what he accomplished. Um, I'll ask Sarah and David the same question. I mean, what is the attraction of sports to tell the kinds of stories that you want to tell? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's, it certainly is, as, as my dad just said, you know, this, this great 
window, this great opportunity for us to look at what's going on in, in arenas much, much beyond sports. Um, and because it becomes this platform um, for someone like Muhammad Ali to kind of rise up and become the figure that he was. Um, and I think, you know, as his daughter Rashida says, he was so much bigger in the film. He, she says he was so much bigger than boxing. You know, that was a small part of sort of who he was, even if we identify him as a boxer. And I do think that even if he had never discovered boxing, I think we would still know who Muhammad Ali was, um, because I think that just his sort of strength of character and his charisma would have sort of brought him to our attention. Um, but I think that sports becomes, and in this case, boxing becomes this incredibly important platform um, for someone like Muhammad Ali, for someone like Jackie Robinson to kind of rise up and become this figure who represents much more than sports. And so, you know, we talk about, I was saying earlier that we, you know, this story is interesting because of all these ways that he, you know, we're learning this biography, we're learning about this person, there are these ways that he interacts with all that's going on in the 20th century. And that's really important. But it's also this sort of he be, his story becomes a kind of reflection of us. And so again, this is this way into understanding something about kind of who we are um, through, in many ways, our reactions to him. Um, what my dad was talking about earlier, that, you know, initially not being comfortable with the way he's talking and the bragging. Um, you know, David Remnick talks about this beautifully in the film, I think, the way that people, that Americans, that white America, um, sort of came around to him at different points and in different ways. Um, and it and it shows a kind of changing of of who we are too, um, and not just sort of who who he was. Mm. Yeah, David, if I can ask you, um you've made films, you know, think about the Central Park Five, I think about um every all the films we've talked about that take on racism very directly. And I wanted to ask you as as white filmmakers, do you think this is an obligation? And what are the ethical or filmic considerations when exploring a black icon like Ali as white filmmakers? Hmm, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think our allegiance is just to the truth here. We're we're trying to um, get to the bottom of why the five black and brown teenagers were framed for this crime and why it was easy for a city to believe in their guilt. And then also we want to hear from them. We'd like to get their perspective. Nobody went across 110th Street uh, in the media to ask to find out who they were and to um, let them tell their side of the story. So I think that's um, what we're aspiring to do is in some of these cases to offer a new perspective. So maybe nobody has gone far enough to understand what um, it was like to be a teenager who was um, troubled by the racism that they were facing in segregated Louisville and found the Nation of Islam and helped that organization help them make sense of the racism they were facing and gave some, some order to their life. And so we want to bring in people who can share that kind of perspective. And so I think it's our obligation to um, offer as much perspective that hasn't been considered as we can and to be as truthful as possible and to try to tell stories that aren't getting told, which is, I think, what we did in our film East Lake Meadows about a housing project in Atlanta. Um, when we went to the residents and asked them to tell their stories, these are people who uh, these are exclusively African-Americans who are living in a forgotten housing project 
um, that was underfunded and underserved, and nobody had gone to ask them um, their version of why their housing project had fallen to the state that it had fallen into. And so I think that's our obligation is to in, offer a platform for people whose voices aren't getting heard. And one, one last question, you guys have been generous with your time. I, I really do appreciate it. I was curious, um, and I guess putting you on the spot here, Ken, starting with you, what's one thing that you learned about Ali that you didn't know before starting this project? Oh, oh my God, Dave, you know, thousands of things. That's what the this process is. Remember that for the eight hours that you see as the finished product, we've got 40, 50 times that material that we've sifted through. And so this is the distillation for all of us of our best sense of how we can relate this complicated and for us super interesting story. And so to me, it's, um, you know, I was, I ended the last comment on, he's just in his twenties. It's his thoughtfulness. It's his poise at at, at moments when you would forgive him for not being poised. Here you have this guy who's ragging on Joe Frazier before their first fight, who's making predictions, who's his ever brash self, despite his, you know the whatever had atrophied from his long exile. And he loses the fight and quite clearly loses the fight. And he is crystal clear and, 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 and absorbs the loss and doesn't internalize it, he turns it around and says, I'm an example for other people who also have loss in their lives. Same mm -hmm. things happen when the Supreme Court exonerates him. He's there, he could be crowing in the fashion that people think Muhammad Ali would be crowing. Instead, he's saying, yeah, this is just a kind of victory for me, but there are other people who are, you know, there are going to be George Floyds and Rodney Kings and Breonna Taylor. So he doesn't say them, of course, but he understands that this isn't what it is. And that goes back to your question to Dave, which is, you know, we put African-American history in February, the coldest and shortest month, as if it's some politically correct addendum to our national narrative and not as we have discovered in everything we have done at the burning heart of it. It is inseparable. It is integrated in every sense of the word. And so it's not, it's just a question of pursuing the stories of us, both the U.S. capital letters and of us of the lowercase two letter plural pronoun. And, you know, the stories in there will keep us busy for thousands of years uh, if we were given that time, which we won't. Mm. So Sarah, what, what's what's something that, that you learned about Ali that you didn't know going in that you're going to carry with you out of this project? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I agree that there are so many things I learned, you know, it, it was in, in many ways all new to me. But I think the thing that um, maybe struck me the most and that I will carry with me was that thing I spoke about before, the way that he touched people and his sort of generosity with um, everyone he encountered. Um, it, it just, that I don't think I had fully appreciated um his impact in that way on this sort of one-on-one -on -one kind of seeing people and making them um, feel special and the way that people talk about that and the impact that that's made, um, I think will, will really stay with me. David. Yeah, I think probably that's about how I would have answered as well. Um, but I will go to a smaller thing. Um, 
something that I learned about him. I don't think I appreciated um, why he was so successful at what he did at all. Maybe I hadn't thought about it that much, but I loved the way that Michael Bent in the film described uh, his talents in the ring, um, his ability to measure the other a punch and know exactly how far he needed to be to throw it. But then also this gift that he had where he could duck punches by moving back. And I didn't understand boxing at all. Um, but I, I think I knew that you would want to block punches and that no trainer would ever coach a boxer to keep his gloves down um, while in the ring. But Ali could keep his gloves down and he can move back and avoid a punch by moving backwards and, and, and sort of moving his head back and he could time it out. And um, I, that seemed amazing. And it, it, it seems like, you know, how Barry Bonds could see this rotation on a baseball uh, coming at him at 93 miles an hour and determine what the pitch was, they say, or Ted Williams, that that was a kind of gift that so few ballplayers had. And I think thinking about that helped me to understand that Ali could see this in a way that nobody else could and avoid those punches and it made him impossible to hit. Um, and that seemed very impressive. Yeah, I love that you talked to Michael Bent. That's awesome. Um, He's wonderful. Yeah, totally. Uh, and then a, a, as I let you go, I ask this of every podcast guest about music when you're working on a project. I know music is very important to all of your lives. Starting with you, Ken, what what, what was your personal soundtrack as you were making this film? What, what gave you inspiration? What pushed you forward? You know what? I don't think it works that way. Just as if we knew something about Ali going in, it, that didn't form it. Just because I knew the first listen fight didn't mean that the listen fight is different. It uh, uh, isn't totally different for me having done the film. It's like you could visit New York City and it means something, but until you move there, it's another place. So we moved to Aliville and everything is different. We may have known a little bit. And so for me, it's always music is, as Wynton Marsalis said to us, the art of the invisible. It's the only art form that's an invisible thing. And it's always something that is an afterthought in films. That is to say, it is added at the end when most of the editing is done. And we don't work that way. We get our music early. We change it often, um, but we have it reflect the times, but also have its own, um, in many cases, and in this cases with the work of uh, Jaleel Beats, uh, have its own a soundtrack to it. So, it, it, you know, you're hearing all the things you're hearing, jazz and R&B and, and uh, funk and, and soul, all of the stuff that would you imagine be a kind of soundtrack of the story of Muhammad Ali, but it's, it's not done in any intellectual fashion. Mm. It's not done with, in a historical way. It's done with the fact that music is not only invisible, it's the fastest art form. Mm. Two notes, they've got you. And that's the most important thing about it. And so we often let the pace and rhythm of music determine, uh, the, of the music we have, rec we have brought, needle drops even, determine it, not score it the other way around, right? Which in which the composer is looking for those particular moments and trying to hit them. And we, we just don't work that way. We would like music we'd like everything to follow the music in, in a way as much as we are storytellers and the narrative is the central part of it music is the you know is what permits uh our work i think to go into a kind of hyperspace 
you know. Fantastic. And anything to add to that, Sarah, David, about music in this project, music for you, music that inspired you as you were making the film? Well, I like this one moment in the movie um, Ali is facing Cleveland Williams. Michael Bent is explaining that Ali's at the height of his powers. He's like Barishnikov or Miles Davis. And we're looking at this glorious 16 millimeter color film. They're fighting at the Astrodome. The, 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 the camera is on the apron looking through the ropes and it kind of falls off in the background. Occasionally you get a glimpse of a golf neon golf sign or a digital clock. And you're just sort of there alone with the two of them. And underneath it is Jimi Hendrix. And that was a song that came out just at about, or, or a, a, it was called Are You Experienced? And it's, it came out just about the same time as that fight. And it feels like Hendrix is playing a guitar in the way no one had ever played it before. And Muhammad Ali is fighting in a way that no one had ever fought before. And the movie kind of becomes technicolor. And the whole scene is sort of, sort of riding atop this Hendrix guitar mm. solo. And everything is pumping on all cylinders. And I'm sitting at the edge of my seat every time I see this. And I've seen it dozens of times. And it's really that Hendrix track that took it from a powerful moment to me to a kind of transcendent moment. Mm. Sarah, last word to you. I, you know, I think the music is so important to the film. Um, it both, you know, and there's a lot of there's a lot of contemporary music in there, stuff from the era, and that's, I mean, it's actually to me, it's it's my parents' music, but it's the music I grew up with, and it's what I still probably listen to the most is music from the '60s and '70s. Um, and there's a lot of really incredible music from that era, as Dave was saying, you know, from from the time from that year, from that period, what people would have been listening to. Um, but there's also a lot of, um, there's contemporary music in there that is, I mean, to now, from from recent years, um, that has the right feeling. It, it either captures something from that era in some ways or was inspired by that era, or it's just something that feels right. I mean, we open the film with a Beyonce tune. Mm. So um, sometimes it just, it speaks to the moment and it speaks to the um, meaning uh, in a way that is perfect, even if it's not from that, that era. Um, and so I think the music is, is, as my dad was saying, just so integral to telling the story and um, I think helps us in, in every scene really uh, create this atmosphere and sort of put us in the time and place. Amazing. The, the film is called Muhammad Ali. It premieres September the 19th. Uh, people are going to be talking about this a lot in the weeks ahead. Thank you all so much for appearing on the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Dave. Uh, be well. Uh, we'll be back right after this, after a quick message from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for some choice words. Okay, look, as far as gaffes go on a global scale, one cannot do much worse than calling the Japanese people Chinese. It is an error of racism and arrogance, not easily washed away with an apology. 
saying such a thing is wincingly awful enough in casual conversation, but doing so in front of a microphone is even worse. Also, doing so when you are the head of the International Olympic Committee, about as popular in Japan as trash on the sidewalk, such a gaffe quickly becomes an international incident. At his first press conference after arriving in Tokyo for the Olympic Games, IOC President Thomas Bach said, Our common target is safe and secure games for everybody, for the athletes, for all the delegations, and most importantly also for the Chinese people. Bach quickly corrected himself, and if it had been another person at another place and in another time, perhaps the immediate correction would have been the end of it. His interpreters chose to not even translate the error but it caused an uproar because Bach has already been consecrated as the great villain of these Olympic Games. Someone demanding $30 billion militarization for the sake of security, the destruction of cherished forests and fish markets, and above all, sacrifice from the Japanese people. Bach is seen as the person who is ramming through the games even though the city of Tokyo is under a state of emergency due to the coronavirus pandemic. He is seen as flouting the will of the 80% of the population who wants the games to be delayed. His statement that the games will be safe and secure sounds like something George W. Bush would say on an aircraft carrier. He seems utterly insensitive to the fear that these Olympics could provoke a super spreader event to a largely unvaccinated population. He doesn't seem to care that 80,000 people are set to descend onto the city, including athletes like U.S. swimmer Michael Andrew, who are boasting about not taking the vaccine. And among top athletes, Andrew is merely the loudest about being an anti-vaxxer. Bach is also making clear through his actions that the strict rules aimed at limiting the spread of COVID throughout the densely populated city do not apply to him. According to Tokyo's rules surrounding the state of emergency, Bach should be isolating himself for 14 days in his five-star hotel suite. But this Friday, he instead will be venturing out of Tokyo to Hiroshima. He wants a nice public relations moment where he can travel to Peace Memorial Park and lay flowers at a monument for those killed in 1945 when the United States dropped an atomic bomb on the city. Yet 30,000 Japanese people have signed a petition calling for this trip to be canceled, not only because they see it as a political stunt that dishonors the dead, but also because he will be violating the quarantine so needed to keep the coronavirus and all its variants at bay. It is just another example of how Bach and his cronies in the IOC simply don't believe the rules apply to them. Bach says that the Olympics will require a great sacrifice from the people of Tokyo praising their, quote, great resilience and spirit, end quote, and their, quote, ability to overcome adversity. But this is not a sacrifice they ask for. It is one being imposed by the IOC over the meek objections of Japanese leaders who, fearful of lawsuits and of losing the billions they have already sunk into the games, seem to have handed the keys of the kingdom over to Bach. He is in charge, like some kind of European imperial viceroy, praising his subjects, if he can remember what nationality they happen to be, for their sacrifice while he oozes along with his entourage around the countryside. In a piece written for the Nikkei Times, Tokyo-based journalist William Pisak asks the question, is there a limit to the Olympic sacrifices we must make? He writes, 
Just out of curiosity, what is your over-under on human sacrifice? I cannot speak for all of the greater Tokyo area's 37 million sacrificers, but for me, it is a very hard no. Spread of the coronavirus feels like an ugly inevitability. Yet even if the worst case scenario does not come to pass, this has already been an exercise in waste, arrogance, and yes, racism. The dehumanization of the Japanese people is a prerequisite for forcing these pandemic games on an unwilling population. Racism provides a pretext for going ahead with the games in the face of all logic. Accepting this dehumanization and racism is a necessity for every Olympic booster putting on blinders and ignoring the cries of resistance. If one can't see that, then listen to Thomas Bach. He'll make that reality clear, one gaffe at a time. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week. Stand up! This is a very ESPN-themed Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down award. Uh, The Just Stand Up goes to ESPN anchor Jay Williams and NFL Network anchor, formerly of ESPN, Rich Eisen, both of whom contracted the coronavirus this week, even though they are both vaccinated. And they put out extremely strong statements about the need for people to get vaccinated, that that is the best and most obvious, frankly, possible way to keep this Delta variant at bay. The more people that get vaccinated, the less likely the Delta variant will spread. And so a lot of credit for Rich Eisen and Jay Williams for not just suffering in silence, but actually using their moment of peril as an opportunity to tell everybody that they are taking horrific risks by not getting vaccinated in the context of the pandemic. The Just Sit Down Award, sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. I'm tempted to say it goes to Stephen A. Smith, although frankly, it could probably go to him every week for whatever dumb things he might happen to say. But this past week, it hit particularly sharply. And I, and I want to actually extend the Just Sit Your Ass Down award from beyond Stephen A. Smith to the entire apparatus at ESPN. See, Stephen A. Smith said a couple of things that were very bigoted on his show. First take. Uh, he said that Shohei Otani, uh, who is the Marvel baseball player for the Los Angeles slash Anaheim slash California Angels, you know, somebody who uh, can hit the ball 500 feet and throw the ball 100 miles an hour, Shohei Otani, I mean, like nothing we've seen since Babe Ruth, Shohei Otani. Showtime, the man who started the All-Star game this week at pitcher and batted leadoff. 
Shohei Otani, the guy who is actually making people notice baseball for the first time in years. Stephen A. Smith said that this Shohei Otani, international superstar, was somehow uh, hurting baseball because of his inability to speak fluent English. This somehow ignored the fact that a lot of great baseball players over the years were not perfect English speakers and still captured the imagination of the public precisely because this is and has always been a multicultural game. Thinking of people like Ichiro Suzuki, Roberto Clemente, and if you want to even go there, I'll say Shoeless Joe Jackson, who a poor white guy who had trouble uh, speaking the King's English, as it were, back in the 19-teens. But all of that is ignored by Stephen A. Smith because he was a blowhard with uh, bigotry in his veins. So he took it out on Shohei Otani. The second thing he said was that the fact that the Nigerian national basketball team beat the United States 90-87 to was not a cause for celebration to the people of Nigeria. It instead was a cause to mock the players of the United States and to mock the names of the Nigerian players, uh, many of whom play in the NBA, all of whom play professionally. And instead of taking this as an opportunity, see, sometimes I wonder if Stephen A. Smith and Azil, if they even like sports. People accuse me sometimes of not liking sports because I roll with a political critique of sports. But one of the reasons I criticize sports is precisely because I love it so much. With Stephen A. Smith and his ilk, you wonder if they even like these games. You really do. I mean, to see Shohei Otani, to see the Nigerian team and not say, wow, this is amazing. This is exciting. This is why we tune in in the first place. Instead, it's cause for anger and cause for uh, dismissal and cause for bigotry. And the reason why I said the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award goes to ESPN even more, though, than Stephen A., is that if you watch the segments, you saw that they were produced. This didn't come off the top of the dome for Stephen A. Smith. You know, he wasn't freestyling like the biz. He was rolling straight ahead with uh, things that had graphics timed to go with them, uh, made in some ESPN production studio. That was followed up by, and this is the other reason why ESPN just just sit down, why it was followed up by Stephen A. Smith apologizing three separate times, by ESPN having other journalists at their network issue their own statements about what Stephen A. said. In other words, they turned it into 24 hours of content. Instead of actually trying to address the problem, which is that ESPN facilitates and empowers Stephen A. Smith, Instead, they went for a solution which just provided more grist for the 24-hour mill, more chum upon which for them to feed. And it's, it's disgusting. Uh, and it, it's something that I, uh, I think should not be the way of the walk for the most influential sports network in the globe. So ESPN with a sub-corollary for Stephen A. Smith, sit your ass down. And to the Nigerian team and to Shohei Otani, thank you for making sports fun. Okay, usually at the end of the show, we do something called Kaepernick Watch, where we talked about the latest and goings of Colin Kaepernick. And I was excited about that this week because Colin Kaepernick announced that uh, he was putting out a children's book, which sounded really interesting and exciting and fun. And, you know, all just very, very proud of him and his entire team 
proud to know them for putting out uh, this, what he's calling a deeply personal children's book called I Color Myself Different. And I don't know, I'm just, that's really cool. But that's not what I want to talk about right now. But I am giving a shout out to Kaepernick and his team putting that book out. Uh, it'll be out later. Um, I think it's in early 2022 is when it'll actually drop. Uh, pre-sales are already through the roof, uh, which is interesting because he's considered to be toxic for the National Football League. Yet somehow parents across the country are buying his book already, even though it won't be out for months. But instead, I want to just do a little tribute to the loss of a hip-hop pioneer, uh, one of the funniest, uh, most talented, uh, most rambunctious DJs and rappers to ever to ever walk the earth. I mean, literally somebody who you could not imagine hip-hop without. And I'm talking about Biz Markie himself. Nobody beats the biz. Nobody beats the biz. Uh, he passed away this week at the age of 57. Uh, gone way too soon. He had a lot more smiles to give. Um, a lot more records to spin. And my one Biz Markie story, it's so funny because Biz Markie reminds me of the person we talked about earlier in this broadcast, uh, Muhammad Ali, and that Biz Markie would make an effort when he would meet people to create an indelible impression upon them. So they would walk away saying, wow, I met Biz Markie. But my Biz Markie story is not about meeting him or shaking his hand or seeing him crack some jokes. My Bismarcky story is about going to a show 30 years ago. Good God, how old am I? 30 years ago. That was um, Cool G Rap. And Rakim actually made an appearance as well. But it was a Cool G Rap show uptown in New York City. And I'll never forget Bismarcky was on the wheels of steel. And a fight broke out. A pretty bloody fight, actually. And, you know, you heard people see yelling things like, Yeah, they're going to call the cops. They're going to call the cops. You know, I mean, it looked like the entire show was going to go right down the proverbial toilet. And then you started hearing this slow, mournful country music song. I mean, really some stuff that was like, Oh, I married my horse and she broke my heart. I mean, we're not exactly talking Hank Williams here. We're talking like the most cliched, uh, tear-jerker country music you ever heard in your life. And you look up, and it's Biz spinning country music. And he gets on the microphone and he says, Everybody better calm down and cool out, or I'm going to be just playing this all night. And it actually worked. Power of the treacly country music chilled everybody out and we got to see Cool G rap with a guest appearance by Rakim, an indelible hip-hop night. And when I think back on that night in the, in the last three decades, I've always thought about Cool G rap, who's one of my favorites. I thought about Rakim, whose poster is on my basement wall. And the Biz story is kind of like a sidelight, you know, and <laughs> where you just sort of laugh and say Biz was spinning country music. But the reality of it is that that story is really about Biz. I mean, he not only saved the show, he did it with his humor and his cool, and he's going to be terribly missed. Biz Markie, all our heart, all our love, legend, left us this week at the age of 57.
Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to uh, the Burns-McMahon crew for talking Muhammad Ali with us. Thank you so much to my producer, David Tigabu, for the facilitation of this podcast and the production. I uh, hope everybody enjoyed the Biz Markey tracks that he played throughout the breaks of this show. Uh, that's David. That's what he do. And for everybody out there listening, mask up, even indoors, outdoors, whatever. You know, wear your mask. Stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>